It goes without saying that when we use uh, the phrase, I am, it carries some significance. It carries great significance. And as we start this series on the I am's that are found in John's gospel, I want to help us understand where we're heading. When we use the phrase I am, it, it's an opportunity for us to, to provide information for people to get to know us better. For example, I am Don's husband. I am the dad of Heidi and Stephanie. I am an avid Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I knew I'd get booze, and that's okay. Get over your jealousy. Deal with it. We've won six. You haven't. Um, and then I am a guy. I am a guy who attempts to play one of the most beautiful games in the world, golf. And I use that word attempts because that's what it is. It's an attempt all the time. But when we say I am, it's providing opportunity for people to get to know us. And in John's Gospel, and I'm going to give you what I call an I Am Starter Kit. So as we start this whole experience over the next number of weeks, you can understand why the I Am's are so important. First off, there are seven of them in John's Gospel. We will be looking at various places in John's Gospel over the next number of weeks. And and the seven are these, I Am the Bread of Life. I Am the light of the world. I am the door, the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, I am the true vine. These seven are found in John's Gospel, and as you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to be going with a very common, they seem to have a lot of things in common with one another, and then when you come to John's Gospel, you sit there and think, what just happened? Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to make a whole lot of sense. They seem to be moving in this direction, and John's Gospel just comes out of the blue with all these different things. Well, what we need to keep in mind is that John's Gospel was written decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were. And over the course of those decades, some false teaching began to happen in the church. And so John is having to address those issues. And one of the biggest issues that John is having to address, one of his main concerns is the deity of Jesus Christ. Meaning whether or not Jesus Christ truly is God. Now let that sink in for a few moments. We have all types of of different philosophies and different people having these different opinions about who Jesus Christ is, and we sit there and say, well, it sort of makes sense. It's 2,000 years later. But yet what's staggering is that they were already having issues with orthodox doctrine just a few decades after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And so John is addressing one of those issues in his gospel. He addresses it over and over again. And one of the ways that he addresses the issue is through using this I am phrase. It's a powerful phrase. It's powerful because of a, because of a, a number of things, but, but a few of them are these. First off, it is the covenant name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Read back in the Old Testament, and Moses has this encounter with a burning bush, and and Moses says, how do I really know it's you? Who are you? And all that happens is God says, I am 
who I am. It's a powerful statement. Moses realizes he is in the presence of God. Another thing is this, is that is that it is such a powerful comment that God, it, it, it leads to this, that it speaks of God's self-sufficient existence, meaning that he doesn't need anyone else out there to prove, to, to create him. Everything else in all of creation is created by him, but unlike his creation, he doesn't need to be created. He always has been. He is the I Am. And the third is this, and this is very important. Because remember, for centuries, the people have been longing for the Messiah. They've been longing for God to show up. And so the Jewish people are wondering this, wondering this, and and are confused by a variety of things. But perhaps the main reason why John uses the phrase, I am, so often in his gospel is this, is that Jews would would automatically understand it to be a claim to Jesus saying, He is God. It's a powerful phrase. It's only two words, but it carries a whole lot of depth to it. So with that starter kit in mind, I invite you now to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we'll start reading at verse 25. It says this, When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, and because you saw the signs I performed... Uh, you're, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign? What sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them food from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven to do, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Father, we pray now as we come into this time of looking at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we may see, open our minds that we may understand, open our ears that we may hear from you. 
and open our hearts that we may be transformed to be the people that you desire us to be. Holy Spirit, I pray that no one hears anything that I say, but only what it is that you want them to hear and need them to hear. And in all of this, may Jesus Christ be lifted up and glorified, the bread of life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, Jesus makes this proclamation that I am the bread of life. And before we get to that proclamation, I need to talk to you about some type of buffet that he served prior to this encounter that he has with the people. But before I get there, I want to ask you this question. What company, what company in this world is the number one retail property owner in the entire world? What company? You ready for this? McDonald's. McDonald's. McDonald's is the number one retail property in the world. As a matter of fact, they have 14,000 of them in the United States. And if you were to extend it to the world, they own 36,000 pieces of property. McDonald's is the number one, number one purchaser of beef, pork, and potatoes in our country. Chicken is their number two on, number, on, on chicken. I think churches use more chicken than McDonald's does, but that's just my opinion. Any potluck, there's always a chicken dish, and there's more than one. So anyway, and the other thing is this, is that McDonald's provides food, and their restaurants are in 119 countries. McDonald's provides an incredible amount of food in this world. But yet, hear me clearly on this, a McDonald's buffet is nothing compared to a buffet that Jesus Christ can provide. Jesus Christ didn't need 14,000 restaurants in the United States. Jesus Christ only needed five loaves and two fish to pull off a buffet that fed over 10,000 people. You go to McDonald's and you say, hey, I'd like, a, I'd like five filet of fish and two orders of fries. You're not going to be able to serve 10,000 people. But you come to Jesus Christ with five loaves and two fish, he can transform them. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that a few verses prior to this, Jesus Christ has done this miracle of feeding upwards of 10,000 people. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. Why is this significant? Why am I making a big deal out of this particular miracle? This particular miracle is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 has significance. The feeding of the 5,000 is something that God said, I want people to understand that this event was huge. And so we pick it up in verse 25 when it says this, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus' response is, very truly, I tell you, you're, not, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but notice the next phrase, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus Christ is letting them know, you are here to see me, not because of who I am, but because you were hungry less than 24 hours ago, and I took care of you. 
I had five loaves and two fish. And the whole reason why you're here isn't because I am the Son of God or I am the one that you're looking for. You want another free meal. You want another free meal. You, you're, 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 you're coming to me because I provided for you yesterday. And you're only looking out for yourselves. Let me just throw this at you. Let's say that after we're done here today, this afternoon, you go over to a friend's house and you're there around 4.30, 5 o'clock and you get to talking and you keep talking, you keep talking. Next thing you know, it's 6.30, you're hungry. Your friend looks at you and says, hey, why don't you just, why don't you just stay here and have dinner with us? You hop at the opportunity, you enjoy your time together. So then tomorrow shows up, 4 o'clock, you decide, hey, I had a free meal at, at uh, Jim and Sally's house last night. Let's pop in again at 4 o'clock today. And let's just see how this works out again. You and I would never do that. Well, maybe some of you would, but I'm not accusing you. But, but we would not do that. The reason being is because it takes away the wonderful experience, the serendipitous experience that we had today. And so what's going on is the people are going back to Jesus and saying, hey, we knew you took care of us this one time. Can you do it again for us? We are easily pleased and rarely satisfied. Because notice what Jesus says here. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. The people ate their fill. As a matter of fact, when we read the story, we find out that there were leftovers. People couldn't even eat all that Jesus provided for them. But yet, the thing was, is that they got hungry again. We get hungry so often. We're satisfied by this thing. We're satisfied by that thing. We're satisfied by all these different things that the world offers us, but yet, or I should say, we're easily pleased by them, and yet we're never fully satisfied. Because we keep looking. Marketers know that. They play on that. To continually provide for us, they, they want us to think that they're going to provide all that we need. We are short-sighted people. And so Jesus addresses that issue and he says, you're looking at me for the wrong reasons. And then we pick it up in verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He moves from the plural to the singular, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. It's one of the most popular questions ever asked. And it's a question that we want to know what truly matters. We want to know what matters because we don't want to waste our time doing things that truly don't matter. And the people are asking that question here. What must we do to do the works God requires? It's a frequently asked question. We want to know what does really matter. And the issue that they're addressing is this, is that, is that in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. 613 commandments, 365 of them are negative, 248 of them are positive. Out of these 613 commandments, the people are saying, we just want to know the works. We want you to take that list and, 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 and pare it down for us so that we spend our time doing what it is that God requires of us to do. 
The people are thinking, hey, we received this gift yesterday. What must we do again to receive that gift again? They put together, they wanted a laundry list of making up all, uh, that, that would provide for them all these different things that they could do to get God's favor again. The sad thing is this, is that no amount of works that you can do will ever change the way God feels about you right now. Let me say that again. No amount of works that you do today can ever change the way God feels about you right now. He loves you with a perfect love. He loves you with such a deep, perfect love that you can never earn it. You can only receive it. They wanted so hard to do what God wanted them to do and they wanted to do all these different works. Do you want us to pray more? We'll pray more. Do you want us to read our Bible more? We'll read our Bible more. Do you want us to be kinder? We'll be kinder. Do you want us to do this? Do you want us to do that? They come up with all this list and Jesus Christ is looking at them and saying, you can't do all of it. Let me ask you a quick question. Why is it so hard for us to receive a gift? A number of months ago on a Thursday night when I was teaching a Bible study, I asked this question, I asked this, it was this, would you rather give a gift or receive a gift? Over 90% of the people said that they would rather give a gift. And so then I asked them this question, I knew that would be the response, I asked them this question, I said, I said, Why? Why would you rather give a gift than receive a gift? And here's the response I got. I don't want to think that I owe someone something. Powerful statement. Real quick side note. I love receiving gifts. And so, here's a list for you. USC football gear, Pittsburgh Steelers football, free rounds of golf, chocolate. That's a pretty good list. And I'm, I'm more than happy to receive those things from you because 90% of you are givers, so bring it on. <laughs> but the people, the people say, we want to do works. We want to do all these works because we know that God will then be pleased with us. Look what Jesus Christ does here. Verse 28, they say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And look at Jesus' answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Folks, it's not about works. It's about the work that has been accomplished through God. That's what he requires. It's not about our works, it's about the work. Jesus Christ moves this thinking from plural to singular. We want to make it all about us, and yet Jesus Christ says, it needs to be all about me. It needs to be all about me because I'm the one who does the work. And our lives then are in response to the work that He has accomplished for us. 
The people thought that they could put together some type of formula and that by putting together some type of formula that God would always come through for them. But Jesus Christ is telling them, you've got it all wrong. It's about the work of God, not your works. Verse 30, so they asked him, all right, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In essence, what they're doing is saying, listen, you think you're that big of a deal. But we've got history on our side, my friend. We had this experience back in the wilderness. Our people had this amazing experience back in the wilderness where they were provided this incredible bread from heaven. You're telling us that you have something better than that? Jesus responds with this, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who, gave you, who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. What he's saying to them is, you need to give credit where credit is due. But the people refused to do that. The people refused to understand that. The people said, listen, we realized 24 hours ago you took care of our needs. But now we want you to take care of our needs again. And they said, and in essence, what they were doing to Jesus was that they were treating Jesus like he was a sideshow. What can you give us today? We saw you do it yesterday. We want you to do the same thing today. That's why we're willing to jump through all these different hoops and hop over all these hurdles so that we can see you do another show for us. And Jesus Christ doesn't play that game. And it's a game that we do all the time, and it's a game of calling remember when. Because that's what the people do here. They say, remember when, look at verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. We play this game all the time. I remember when I was younger and I had to walk to school uphill both ways in a snowstorm. I remember when I was younger that I would stay outside and play out until it became dark at night and instead of the way kids are today when they play these video games. I remember when this happened. Or I remember when that happened. And what ends up happening is we end up exalting the past and diminishing the present. And that's what the people are doing here now. They're saying, remember when, when, remember when God was on the move, when God was with our people? I invite you to turn your Bibles all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, and let's take a closer look at this encounter that they have. So in Exodus chapter 12, let me fill you in on what's going on at this particular time. God, the, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for a long time, for 430 years. Not a good place. They were treated horribly. Then God raises them up and he pulls off this amazing rescue. But as they're getting ready to be rescued, and it's known as the Passover, as they're getting ready to be rescued, on their way out of town, God does something and provides something for the people that oftentimes we read right past. In Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 33, listen to what happens here. So the Israelites are leaving, 
In verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in, in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing, in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians, get this, asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. So the Israelites are on their way out of town. They said, hey, while we're leaving, can you take care of us? Some silver, some gold, some clothing. Look what happens in verse 36. Yahweh had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. Notice the next line. So they plundered the Egyptians. God moves in such a way, the people are on their way out of Egypt, and God moves in such a way to provide for them from the people that were oppressing them. They received abundantly more than they could ever ask for or imagine. They are plundering the Egyptians. The Egyptians, in essence, say, we can't get these guys out of here quick enough. Let's give them whatever they want. And you know what happens? They take off with an abundance. God provides for them. And so they take off. They cross the Red Sea. God does this amazing thing. He parts it. They make it through on dry land. The waves come crashing in on the Egyptians. It's a horrific experience for the Egyptians. It's a great reminder of God taking care of them. They take off. There's this great song in Exodus chapter 15 that that talks about the, the horse and rider being thrown into the sea. Great stuff. All these types of things. God is on the move. Wonderful things happening. Israelites are feeling all warm and fuzzy that God's with them. And then look what happens in Exodus 16. And this is the event that the Jewish folks back in John 6 are referring to. The whole Israelite community, this is verse 1, set out from Elim, and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So keep in mind, two and a half months after they've come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Let me say this again. It's only been two and a half months. There were 430 years of slaves. It's been two and a half months. They're grumbling. And they say this in verse 3. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by Yahweh's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Really? You were slaves! You were making bricks without straw! You were eating around fires, eating all the meat that you wanted? You had this smorgasbord in front of you? No, you didn't! You were barely making it. We sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Two and a half months. Two and a half months of freedom. And they're wanting to become slaves again. Verse 4. Then Yahweh said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. 
The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was Yahweh who, who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard you grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was Yahweh when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but you are, 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 against, are arguing against Yahweh himself. Then Moses told Aaron, said to the entire Israelite community, Come before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of Yahweh appearing in the cloud. Yahweh said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you'll eat meat, and in the morning you're going to eat bread. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The people were grumbling. And who provides? God. God provides. Because that's the way God operates. And so the people back, in, we're now back in John chapter 6. People, the people in John 6 are remembering back to this event. And in essence, what they're saying to Jesus is, are you really better? Are you really better than what our people experienced thousands of years ago? They had this manna coming down from heaven. And it was delicious. God took care of them. So you're going to tell us, that just because you did one meal, that you're better than what they had? Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. The people that attributed Moses with this credit of, of taking care of them, but it was God who took care of them. And the people then say, listen, are you better or are you not? And Jesus Christ responds to them and says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, whoever comes to me, will never go hungry or thirsty again. That manna that you guys are all excited about and think is so fantastic, I'm better than manna. Because I don't spoil, and I never run out. You have a need, I can take care of that need. You have issues going on in your life right now, I can take care of those issues. I am the bread of life. I can handle whatever 
you need in your life. So I ask you this morning, are you hungry? And if you are hungry, are you turning to the one who is the bread of life? Are you turning to the one that can give you forgiveness? Are you turning to the one that knows that there's more month than there is paycheck and he'll take care of your needs? Are you turning to the one that in the midst of your guilt and shame, you're trying to do all these different things to get God's attention, are you turning to the one that says, I am the bread of life, I can provide the forgiveness that you're longing for? I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry... I can take care of you. During World War II, the Germans forced 12 and 13-year-old German boys into what was called the Junior Gestapo. These boys were treated harshly and given ridiculously inhumane jobs to perform. And when the war ended, most had lost complete contact with their family and they wandered around without food and without shelter. As part of an aid program that the United States and other countries put in place for post-war Germany, many of these children, 12 and 13 year olds, were placed in tent cities by themselves, no parents around. And so here doctors and psychologists worked with these boys in an attempt to restore their mental and psychological and physical health. They found that many of the boys were waking up in the middle of the night screaming, terrified of what might happen the next day. So one doctor had an idea. And after feeding the boys a large meal, he put them to bed with a piece of bread in each one of their hands, which they were told to save until morning. The boys began to sleep soundly because they finally had the assurance that bread was there the next day. When Jesus Christ, the bread of life, enters into your life, you have the assurance that He will not go away from you. That He will satisfy you and walk with you whatever comes your way. Father, we pray now, as we contemplate these words, we would ask that you would help us realize that Jesus Christ truly is all we need. And Lord, in these moments of quietness, we ask that we would turn to you and that you would hear us in our thoughts and in the quietness of our heart. Because we are a needy people. And we know this, that only you, Lord Jesus, can satisfy. Thank you, Jesus, for being the bread of life. May we never hunger, may we never thirst. Because we know that you will provide. Help us in those times when we're wondering if we're going to make it. And help us in those times to know that you'll provide just what we need. And it's in his name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.